Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for who you are and that you are faithful to us. We thank you for sending your Son to the cross in our place, that he was raised for our justification. Father, your word tells us that your Son is the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets, and we can listen to him and believe him as his speech is truth. May what you say about Jesus as the greatest prophet from Scripture this afternoon instruct our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. When Elijah first came on the scene in 1 Kings 17, he received the word of the Lord to go to a widow in Zarephath and, uh, so that she may feed him food. Elijah took off, obeying the word of the Lord. He found the widow gathering sticks, and he asked her for water and bread. But because the widow had not even enough flour and oil to feed herself and her son, she was indeed dispirited, she said to Elijah that she was unable to do this task for him. But Elijah replies to the, that the Lord will bless her and that her jar of flour and oil will not go empty. And moreover, that she will be able to make enough food for herself, her son, and Elijah. And the word of the Lord proves true. She is able to prepare enough food for herself, her son, Elijah, and her whole household for many days. And so a miracle happens. In the next scene, though, tragically, the son of the widow in Zarephath dies, leaving her as a widow. And now without any family left, the widow cries out against Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? Elijah, greatly distressed, carries the dead son to a bed, crying out to the Lord for healing, stretching himself over the child repeatedly, and God listens to Elijah. And the son comes back to life. Resurrection. And with that, the woman says to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is indeed truth. 1 Kings 17, 24. Elijah, one of the prophets of old, prays to God for a resurrection, and God graciously and mercifully raises the boy. The Elijah story in 1 Kings 17 has a close parallel to the story in Luke 7, chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. Jesus in Luke also meets a widow of a, of a deceased son, but in this story, he actually raises the son in the middle of a funeral by his own power and authority. And just as Elijah gave the resurrected son to his mother in 1 Kings 17, verses 23, Jesus and Luke... 7, verse 15, gave the resurrected son to his mother. And so these stories then resemble each other. They parallel each other. We'll be looking at Luke 7, 11, uh, verses 11 to 17 this afternoon. And the main idea of this Luke passage is that Jesus is depicted as the greater Elijah, the new and better Elijah, the promised messianic prophet, according to Deuteronomy 18, 15, whose authority extends even over the dead. So to say that again... The main idea is that Jesus is depicted or portrayed as the greater Elijah, whose authority extends over the dead. So turn with me to Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. 
or tap there on your device, and then uh, we'll begin reading the passage. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're also wondering why I picked this passage, if, if you were here last summer, I preached on Luke 7, 1 to 10, which was the previous passage. So I'm just continuing the chapter here today. So it's kind of a mini-series that happens once a year. So. <laughs> Luke's chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. Verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. As we look through this passage, we'll see that verses 11 to 12 set the scene. Verses 13 to 15 is Jesus' response of compassion and his miracle. And verses 16 and 17 is the people's response and Jesus' worldwide recognition. So let's look at verse 11 here. Jesus, soon afterwards, went to a town called Nain. Now, to provide some context here of where Jesus has been recently, he has just delivered his Sermon on the Mount on a mountain in chapter 6, verses 20 to 49. So that's what, happened with, that's what has happened previously. At that point, he gains a massive crowd of, of, uh, of disciples who are learning from him. And the point of the sermon is to say, who is a true disciple of Jesus Christ? You can learn from Jesus, but do you serve him? Do you follow him? Do you submit your life to him? And do you live out the characteristics that mark a Christian, that mark a true disciple of Christ according to the Sermon of the Mount? That's the question. Jesus then proceeds from the mountain where he gave a sermon to Capernaum in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. So you can see that in verse 1. He goes to Capernaum. Now Luke strategically places this next scene about the Roman centurion whose faith amazed Jesus right after the Sermon of the Mount to make a point. Now, in the centurion story, if you remember, Jesus walks to Capernaum, he receives word from the centurion that his son is sick, and then Jesus then goes to the centurion and heals, his, uh, heals the son with divine power. Now, the point that Luke makes by placing the centurion story right after the Sermon on the Mount is to say that the centurion himself embodies the very characteristics of the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, he's a Sermon on the Mount disciple. If you want to know what the Sermon on the Mount looks like, you look to him because he's the Sermon, he's the sermon of the Mount on display. Um, now, the centurion in this story you'll see is that he understands his own spiritual bankruptcy, he understands who Jesus is, that he is holy, and he places his faith, he has faith in Jesus, demonstrating, demonstrating remarkable faith. And so we in turn as the readers therefore ought to imitate the centurion. Now, 
having set the context here in our passage for today, Jesus comes to Nain in verse 11. And, in the verse it says, And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. So Jesus continues to have this massive entourage of people following him. And Nain, as for Nain, it's about a day's journey from Capernaum. And it is on a hill called Moray. Now on this hill called Moray, this is important, so note the geographical connection, is also Shunem, which is the place in which Elisha had also resurrected the dead son of a widow in 2 Kings 4, Kings 4, the the widow of a, a Shunammite. And so there may be a hint here then that Jesus is about to do an Elijah, Elisha resurrecting work. Verse 12 and the next few verses set the stage more. As Jesus is passing through the gates uh, to Nain, he sees a funeral procession. The widow of the dead son is leading the procession and is weeping. In those days, there would be flute and cymbal players and and professional mourners who would create dissonance um, so as to make the crowd wail for the person's death. And the widow, with a large crowd of people, is moving from the town to a burial site. And the dead son is being carried out on a bier. So that's spelled B-I-E-R, which I take to be a stretcher. So the body then is on the stretcher and as a, as a dead corpse that's probably rotting is, is visible to the entire public. So unlike, unlike where the body then is nicely preserved in a coffin nowadays, you have this dead body completely visible. And this serves, this serves to stress the biblical point, I believe. We're not normally confronted with raw human death, but I guess people are still today. And in that case, I believe that um, that the, the principle here that, that's very applicable is that sin produces death. And you get a visible picture of that when you see dead people on a stretcher. So with sin producing death, as Romans 6.23 says, you can, you can fight a cold or you can fight an injury because of your sin, no doubt. But you will not be able to fight the ultimate, inevitable consequence of sin, which is death. And so funerals then remind us of this truth that sin produces death. But this truth also serves a reminder of the gospel that you need someone then to beat death, therefore defeating the power of sin defeating the consequence of sin, and so you need someone then who beats death, who then can supply salvation, that can supply new life, that can grant new life to people. So that, this new life then, is a life that's not dominated by the power of sin, that does not have the result of death, which is Jesus Christ. We need Jesus Christ who beat death, so that we will no longer be ruled under the power of sin and death. But let me stress quickly the the sadness of the situation with the widow. The widow has lost her husband, and and now she's lost her son. And widows are constantly seen as the marginalized in the Bible. The husband is the provider and the protector. He's out of the picture, and now without the son, she no longer has any familial support. Moreover, in Jewish Jewish culture, if if your family line is ended, that's also quite tragic. And so there's all these people here, presumably, to, to support her in her devastating time. But now look at verses 13 to 15 here. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. 
Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bear stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Here, divine compassion turns to divine power, and an utterly tragic situation becomes a situation of great joy. With um, Jesus himself felt compassion, which is to say pity, concern, care for this woman, and his feeling of compassion within him prompted a divine command, do not weep, and then he gloriously resurrects her dead son. You can imagine the situation now. Jesus enters the gates. He sees a funeral procession. People are wailing. He marches to the front of the procession, stops it, and tells the woman, do not weep. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were to do something like that, I think I'd be getting into some trouble. I don't, I don't see myself doing that just to stop you know, a funeral procession. Uh, that, that seems like that, that there could be a lot of trouble there. But Jesus does so, but he does something incredible, no doubt. And what he does is he raises a dead man in, the, in a moment's notice, just like that. And so you, you can imagine the, the shock, the response. And so here, the creator God opens his mouth and boundless power explodes. His authoritative words, his very own speech, have power even over the dead. And so this is our Savior and Creator Lord who gives physical life and who resurrects the dead. He is also a compassionate God. As we see, he has compassion for the widow. And compassion is built in the supreme character of our God. Remember Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows, sorry, I just skipped some verses here will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. And there's also this other passage that I wish to bring up, and that's Psalm 103, verses 8 to 14. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God is compassionate. God is compassionate to the widow. And you notice that the text does not say that, he, that she does something in order to merit God's compassion. God is by nature a compassionate God. He aches about the pains of people. He cares about family. He cares about you. He cares about your suffering. He cares about your, your needs, your wants. And so this ought to bring you comfort. In your case, brothers and sisters, you have been rescued from darkness and have been brought into the light. God has pitied you and he has had compassion on you in such a way that Jesus himself has purchased you, redeemed you, cleansed you, rescued you from all your sin by taking on a horrible death on a cross. And now you can savor the undeserved benefits of who God is, his majesty, his greatness, and you can experience his compassion 
and tender care in your lives as, a, as sons and daughters of God. Jesus cares about the temporal needs of the widow, and how much more does he care about your eternal spiritual needs as sons and daughters, brothers and sisters? So cling to Jesus in all your ways, whose great and steadfast love, and who's the God of all comfort. In verses 16 to 17, here's the crowd's response. Fear. They say, God has visited his people, in verse 16. <clears throat> the people were no doubt in fright at Jesus, who had just resurrected a dead man in plain sight. So you have a period of 400 years that passed by, no, no prophets going on, a period of silence. And now, Jesus, as a prophet, performs a supernatural work. God has visited his people. People are not raised up every single day, are they? Unless God is involved. And so a report of Jesus then spreads throughout Judea and the surrounding country that a prophet has emerged, and it is evident that God is behind his miracles. But what is wrong here? <clears throat> or is there something wrong here? I submit to you that there is something wrong here, and it's with the crowd's profession. So look at what they say in verse 16 here. A great prophet has risen among us. <clears throat> A great prophet has risen among us? Just like Elijah? Jesus is not a great prophet. He is the great prophet. He is the glorious Almighty who has come to save his people from his sins, from their sins. He is not just a prophet. There is no prophet, in fact, that compares to him in any degree. The people's profession is like what the Muslims say. Sure, Jesus is a prophet, but he's not God. And so you see the problem here. And this is seen also in Luke 19, where Jesus weeps over the coming destruction of Jerusalem. He weeps over Jerusalem because it's these sorts of people that miss the time of Jesus' visitation. In other words, they don't understand that he's the Messiah to come. And so Jesus weeps over these sorts of people who do not recognize who he is and do not believe in who he is. And so there was tragedy then with the widow's son, but there is even more tragedy here because the people don't even recognize who Jesus is. He is the anticipated Messiah prophet from the Old Testament, the Lord himself. Now remember, Luke has just said the Lord in verse 13, if you look at the passage here. And he actually, the way he puts it, uh, the Lord, it's actually for the very first time in Luke, it has the Greek article the. So this is the first time a unique occurrence in Luke where it says the Lord as opposed to just Lord. And I think he's, he's doing this on purpose to stress the fact that Jesus is Lord God over and against what the people are professing, a great prophet. Yes, he is like Elijah, who raised the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17. Yes, he is like Elijah, who raised the Shunammite's dead son in 2 Kings 4. Yes, he is like them, a prophet. But he is not just another prophet in the historical redemptive plan of God. Elijah prayed to God that God would raise the widow's son, and that is exactly what God did. But Jesus, Jesus did not pray to God to raise the widow's dead son. He is God. He spoke words of power that changed death into life. 
Jesus did not pray to God for a resurrection. He spoke and there was resurrection. His words and power are divine, unlike any other person's words. He's the divine prophet in the flesh. You see, his speech is the very speech of God. And he's the very word of God, according to John 1. So you see the stories, in, you see in the stories the differences that are emerging between Elijah and Jesus. And we also know that many people thought that Jesus was simply a prophet like Elijah in those times, in those biblical times. And not just in the town of Nain. So when Jesus asked <clears throat> in Matthew 16, who do men say that the Son of Man is? This, the disciples' reply is what? Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But Luke depicts Jesus clearly as the greater Elijah here, the greatest of the prophets, the Lord himself. Now, the very next section after our passage here in verses 18 and 23, you have John the Baptist who sends messengers to ask Jesus if he was the Messiah they were expecting. Perhaps John the Baptist asked this question because of the global reports that he was heard hearing concerning Jesus, possibly from this crowd of people, that Jesus was another presumably human prophet. And Jesus responds to John in that section by saying that he is the Isaiah 61 Messiah, for he brings good news to the poor, proclaiming liberty to the captives, and the dead are raised up, verse 22. So when Jesus says that the dead are raised up by his hand, that confirms that he is the, the long-awaited Messiah, for he's just raised a dead man in our text here. And so Jesus, our Messiah, has come to bring salvation to his people with words of authority and power and life. So behold this King, our Lord. Praise him for who he is, for he's a compassionate God, and for what he does, raising people from the dead. Brothers and sisters, when you evangelize, make sure to tell unbelievers who exactly Jesus is. He's not a merely a prophet, as the Muslims say. So do not water down who Jesus is. Present him as the Bible depicts him. Present him as he truly is. Jesus is not merely a messenger of revelation, but he is the source of divine revelation, as he says, but I say unto you, which confirms his deity. And as a source of divine revelation, it is true, therefore, when he says that salvation in him alone, or he says that salvation is in, is in him alone, that's true, and we can believe that. Moreover, we can have confidence in that, as he's the divine prophet. <clears throat> now that we've looked at this passage, there are two points, two important points that I believe emerge from our text this afternoon, and they concern how we read Christ in the Bible. So I will close by providing two points on biblical interpretation. The first point is that of a Christ-centered hermeneutic, which is to say when we read both Testaments in our Bibles, both Old and New, we understand that they point to Christ and explain Christ. The second point is that we need to understand what the Old Testament prophesies concerning the Messianic prophet to come, what the Old Testament says about that. The Old Testament speaks quite a bit about the coming of Jesus as the greatest prophet, and since the main idea of our Luke passage is that Jesus is the greater Elijah, we will look then at some of the things, I think because it's relevant, what the Old Testament says about Jesus as the coming prophet. So those are the two points. So let's look at the first point here, a Christ-centered hermeneutic. We know that the totality of the scriptures point to Christ and explain Christ. 
as Jesus says in Luke 24, 27. And so Jesus here says, And beginning with Moses and, and the prophets, he, that is Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And also John chapter 5, verses 45 to 47, Jesus says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So we understand then that both Testaments then point to Christ and explain Christ. And so we no longer read then Old Testament stories as having endings in and of themselves, given the emergence of the New Testament. We now see Old Testament stories as pointing beyond themselves to Christ in some particular way. They are there to tell and explain Jesus, including the fact then that Jesus is the greatest of all prophets. So then we can expect then in Luke to make deliberate parallels between Elijah in 1 Kings 17 and Jesus in Luke 7 in order to show that Jesus is indeed the greater Elijah. Whereas Elijah provides revelation from God to people, Jesus is the source of divine revelation. Whereas Elijah cries out to God to resurrect the widow's son in Zarephath, Jesus speaks divine authoritative words that resurrect the widow's son in name. When Elijah receives direct revelation from God, we know that his proclamation of that revelation is true, yet whenever Jesus speaks, we know that his speech is truth, and that he always speaks with authority. We can trust what Jesus says every single time he opens up his mouth, for he is the word of God. Not only that, but in Hebrews 3, 1 to 6, the point is made that Jesus is greater than Moses. And so we can expect then to see parallels between prophets in the Old Testament, their ministry, with the ministry of Jesus, not merely Elijah, not merely Moses. Because the author of Hebrews is doing this here. He's He's, high, he's showing that the Old Testament prophets' ministry served to highlight particular aspects of Jesus' ministry, but only to a limited extent, so that Jesus' prophetic ministry then eclipses them all. So this is then a legitimate way, because the author of Hebrews does this, where when we read an Old Testament prophet's ministry, we can then see, oh, but Jesus, in this, in this passage, whatever it may be, there's a connection here, and he does something greater. And so we can then look at prophets in the Old Testament, make comparisons, and see Christ there legitimately. Now, I'll give you a quick example then to tickle your fancy here. Stick with Elijah's, Elisha's ministry for a second. In 2 Kings 5, Elisha tells Naaman, a commander of the army of the king of Syria, to go wash in the Jordan seven times for physical healing from his leprosy. Through Elisha, then, God um, cleanses the flesh of Naaman, the Syrian commander. But consider Jesus, though, in John 9, who anoints a man's blind eyes with mud and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Not only is the man's eyes healed physically, but he's also given spiritual sight, unlike Naaman, I believe. And so after the blind man in John 9 is restored, you see, the more he talks and acts in the chapter, the more he's like Jesus. And so Jesus, as the greater Elisha, imparts not only cleansing and healing on a physical level, like Elisha, but he provides spiritual life to the man. So no doubt, then, Jesus is greater than Elisha as he provides salvation to men as a prophet. Okay, second point. 
The Old Testament already tells us a lot about the, the coming Messiah, who will be a prophet. So this is a very important passage. So I'll give you guys the time to turn to this passage here. It's Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 18. So turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 18. <coughs> So verse 15, chapter 18 of Deuteronomy. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, as in like Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see that this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. Now verse 18. Also an important verse. Verse 15, verse 18, they're pretty important here. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, as in an Israelite, from among the brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So Moses here says that, that there will be a prophet to come like himself, like Moses. And and what's interesting is that the Apostle Peter then brings up this exact text in Acts 3, verses 22 to 24, and links this coming prophet who is like Moses as Jesus. Now, Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 18, is a very significant text in the Old Testament, since it tells us that from Moses himself proceeds, proceeds an institution of prophets. And uh, so that Moses is the prototype of the institution of prophets that, are, that follow him, and that all the prophets that follow are types of Jesus, Jesus being the anti-type of the, the prophets, the, uh, the, the apex of the prophets, you could say. The other prophet, like Moses. Now, what is with the reference, God raising a prophet like Moses? What's, what's up with a prophet like Moses? Well, Moses is a special, is, is, is a special prophet in the Old Testament institution of prophets, because he's, no, he's not like any other Old Testament prophet. So listen then as I read Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 10 to 12. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, key there, face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So what is the difference then between Moses and all the other Old Testament prophets? It's that he dealt with God face to face. And the other prophets do not. And Numbers 12, chapter 12, verse 6 to 8, confirms this point in more detail. And he, God, said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him, in a vision, I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. So Moses, unlike any other Old Testament prophet, dealt directly with God. He even saw the back parts of God in Exodus 34. 
And so the prophet to come then is number one, like Moses, and number two, according to Deuteronomy 18, 15, chapter 18, verses 15 to 18, one who speaks God's words with authority. Just as Moses saw God face to face, Jesus is in fellowship with the Father. Just as Moses performed signs and wonders by the power of God in Egypt, Jesus performed signs and wonders in his ministry, like raising dead people. Just as Moses mediated the law to the people as a prophet, Jesus mediated his law, the law of Christ, to the people. So this is why people would ask if Jesus was the coming Messiah, because he appeared to be a prophet with great authority, mediating the law, claiming fellowship with the Father, and performing miracles that were unmatched by any other prophet. And so there's a consensus then that if you're seeing the Deuteronomy 18 prophet, this is also the Messiah. So in our Luke 7 passage, we are not surprised then to read the crowd's reaction when they see Jesus resurrecting a dead man. A great prophet has risen among us. His miracles and authority precede him. The problem, though, is that their profession of Jesus was inadequate. They did not profess him to be the Deuteronomy 18 prophet foretold, lest they would have understood him to be the Messiah. And if they did profess him to be the Deuteronomy prophet, then they would have had a different reaction. This is the son of David, the son of man. This is the Christ. But the, the people misunderstood who he was, and they missed everything as a result. But God has revealed his son to us in his mercy and grace, and we know who Jesus is. He is the long-awaited Messiah, the anticipated prophet, one who has brought salvation to his people through his cross work. And we can be sure that when Jesus says that salvation is through him alone, as the divine prophet, what he speaks is truth, and we can have confidence in that. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are so good to us once again, and that you have provided your word to us, which explains so clearly and carefully who your son is. We thank you that he has brought us from darkness into light, so may we consider these truths about your Son, and may they be spiritually enriching to our souls. Bless the rest of our day, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jeremy. For those of you who have not had an opportunity to make an offering to our church, you have that opportunity now. Take the stick with you. <laughs> yeah. the, uh, just while, while Dwayne's doing that, there was a, I don't know, somebody got a text or a Facebook or whatever. These newfangled things. Um, Nathan and Bonnie are in the hospital uh, in Regina. So it's baby time. So let's, let's just pray for them quickly. Lord God, we are, are uh, just grateful and marvel at the continuation of life, God, that you give us, and uh, we're just truly in wonder of, of this amazing uh, just process that you've institu instituted. I just ask for your blessing, your protection on mother and child as uh, they go through this, this period, and uh, the adjustment in their family afterward, Lord, that you would give them rest and and patience and adaptation in their new normal. And uh, we just offer 
thanks again to you for the blessing of children in our lives, and we just give them up to you, and Lord, amen.